Welcome, Zoe. Rita, thank you so much for your flexibility with my absent-minded professor thing where I teach Mondays and Wednesdays, as Rita knows, and um, I just didn't realize we had a Friday makeup session today for a labor day. So I know you get get so in such a rut with your with your academic calendar. Anyway, so we meet Ron Boer, who works with me. And uh, we we were just having a little informal uh, chit chat with uh, with uh, some of our regular attendees of Friday, Friday Fireside Chats. Meet also Jacora Kaiser, who's our moderator. She's uh, she keeps keeps us honest and sort of works uh, in in the background. So. Hey, everybody. Um, this is our guest this week, uh, Zoe Chance, who's a professor at Yale, I believe, right? Um, yes. And where she teaches one of their most popular courses on influence. And she's a behavioral economic economist by training. And she has a fabulous new book, which is forthcoming. And it's called Influence for Influence is Your Superpower. <laughs> I believe that's right, the title. So thank you for joining us. Um, and maybe share a little bit about your background, because you have a fascinating one. I mean, you, you were in major retail and ran a big division of Barbie <laughs> and, and then came to the professoriate. So I'd love to hear how that journey went for you. Sure. Um, uh, so I'm so also thank you very much for inviting me, Rita. And thank you, everybody, for being here. And I love that we're doing this on Zoom. Um, and I'm happy for us to have interactions like a Zoom class kind of thing to meet everybody. Yeah, our, our folks are very active on the chat. So <laughs> I have the chat window open too. And, <laughs> and I always encourage people in any Zoom situation that I'm in to not be shy about using the chat because we're all, uh, okay, maybe I should speak from personal experience. I'm always tempted to be multitasking when I'm on a video conference. And if you use the chat, then what you get to do is channel your multitasking energy into this conversation. So you can comment, ask questions, respond to each other's questions, smack talk. I won't be able to monitor the 100% of the chat. I'll definitely look at it later. And Jokor, I know you will be monitoring the chat. So uh, great. And and you see in the chat, if you have that open, Part of my background that Rita referred to is I used to manage a big chunk of the Barbie doll business. The piece that I was running was the Barbie dolls for tiny little girls, fairies and mermaids, fairytopia. And before that, I was working in sales and doing telemarketing and door-to-door stuff. And I was actually a professional actor and director as well. So I'm mentioning those things because the real world study of influence, I was also involved in politics some for a while my background in influence is very practical. And when I came to do a PhD and be doing research, what I really still cared about the most was being able to have a real world impact and help people become more influential. So I invented this class called Mastering Influence and Persuasion when I started teaching at Yale about 10 years ago. And who doesn't wanna be more influential and persuasive, right? So it is a super popular class, but I can't take as much credit for it as just the specific topic. But the class has been a blast. Um, We've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for charity. We've gotten some media attention for things like games where you start with a paperclip and then you have a week to trade up as many times as you want for something bigger and better, bigger and better. And then you show up the next week in class with whatever your biggest, best thing is. So we get weird things like somebody brought a tree, um, you know, somebody, does something nice, like brings donuts to the class or whatever. Um, but, w- and like also like weird stuff um, that I don't even know what to think of. Like somebody brought a piece of Saddam Hussein's palace. I don't know. 
But the coolest thing uh, that happened was a couple of students traded up in four days from a paperclip to a car. Whoa. And they ended up, yeah, they traded with 10 New Haven business owners and they got a car dealership to donate a car, give a car in exchange for a painting that they traded up for. And they donated it to a refugee family. And it was a mom from Afghanistan who got to have a car to be able to drive to work instead of taking the bus for two hours each way. Wow. So that was super exciting. So That's what the class is about is real world challenges. And I'm talking about the class partly because I'm in the middle of four sections right now, but that's also where the book came from. It's mm -hmm. called Influences Your Superpower, comes out in February. And the subtitle is The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change and Making Good Things Happen. So my goal is switching how we think about influence, many of us from a a stereotype of like a smarmy used car salesman kind of thing, or like, I don't work in sales and I never would work in sales to a bigger picture of how can we have more of the impact in the world that we want to be having. Mm -hmm. And what that takes is becoming more influential by studying interpersonal influence. So that's my jam. I love it. I love it. So what are some of the, the, like the, the, the lessons, the sessions that you teach? What, how do you, how do you design that course? To, so, um, you know, you're a teacher reader and I'm happy to share my stuff with you whenever you want, like <laughs> syllabus, anything. Um, but to give a sample today, what our focus is, is saying no. This is the second class. And was, we're talking about saying no. And then we're also talking about asking related to that. And they had a 48 hour challenge that they just finished where the first and, and but like everyone on here do this if it seems fun. It, or, or actually do it if it seems scary and you'll probably find it's more fun. Um, but if you find someone else to do with it, it's more fun because you get to talk, talk with them and see what you learn. The first 24 hours is no. And you say no to everyone who comes to you with a request or an invitation, giving them no more explanation than you absolutely, absolutely have to make. Like no is a complete sentence. No thank you is a polite, complete sentence. And, uh, you know, I'm just not able to right now is all the information usually they need. And then, but, but like, obviously don't ruin your life. Right. So I tell the students, if you get your dream job offer in these 24 hours, don't say no. <laughs> if your sweetie proposes to you and you would like to spend the rest of your life with them, please don't say no. And then if you needed to explain the challenge or if you needed to change your mind, that's fine, but just do it after you have the experience of saying no and feeling their reaction. Um, then the next 24 hours is we practice yes and. It's a different thing than an improv, but it's a little bit related if you're an improv person. But the idea is you say yes if you can to the requests coming your way and you make another request of your own at that same time. And this sparks discussions in class about reciprocity and reciprocity styles. And we talk about givers and takers and matchers. And actually just for fun, because we can do this on Zoom. Um, let's do a little reciprocity style okay. uh, prediction exercise. Reciprocity styles, and this part is based on Adam Grant's work. So if you're familiar with, um, he has a really great TED talk or a book called Give and Take. This, this part is related to that. And um, if you already are very familiar and you read the book, don't be one of the first people to write in the chat, okay? But three reciprocity styles 
that we have as our default is maybe we're a giver and what we're looking for is opportunities to do good for people. And it's all based on motivations. The takers among us are not necessarily bad. We're not a bad, some are, but it's not bad. It's just the perspective of we're looking for what's in it for me. We're looking out for our own outcomes. And economists would say all of us are takers. And then matchers are focused on fairness and justice. Fairness and justice for themselves and for other people. There's a relationship between reciprocity style and success. And now I'll ask you to, if you don't already know the answer, write into the chat your guess about who would be the most successful, who would be the least successful and who in the middle. And we're talking about quantifiable success, like um, how much money do you have? What position are you in a hierarchy? What, how are your grades? Things like that. So write your guess. Where would you rank givers and takers and matchers in success? It looks like givers are showing up on top the most, but we also have votes for givers at the bottom. And we have votes for takers at the top. And we have votes for matchers at the top. And is it fine, Rita, if we just have a conversation about this? Of course. Of is course. this a cool topic? Okay. So it's a totally let me cool just topic. ask. Um, Starting with uh, Man Mohan, tell me if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. What could lead to givers rising to the top? How could that happen if that might be true? If you're able to use um, the mic and talk with us, you might not be, I don't know. Oh, I'd have to, I'd have to make him a panelist. Oh, you, oh, I'm sorry. It's a webinar. Yeah. It's not a meeting. So, um, oh, okay. I apologize. Let me not add that additional (laughs) layer of complication. Um, and it would take a while. The reason is that, um, you know, it's an open, it's an open, um, webinar. So we never actually know who's going to be here. And every so often we have a lunatic or two. (laughs) Oh my God. Thank you. For everybody. Yeah. (laughs) We had some zoom bombing issues, uh, in our, classes when we went fully virtual at Yale, oh, yeah. it was a disaster. So it was a good call. All right. <laughs> um, so, what I was going to ask you about actually with the givers and takers, and then we'll come back to the chat in a minute, is um, yeah, sure. your colleague Marissa King uh, uses a similar framework to talk about people's networking styles. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly what her framework is. I remember thinking that it was super cool. You mm-hmm. don't happen to remember what the elements are, do you? She talks about um, how you have people that are... Um, connectors um, and people that are kind of transactors and and that that that's part of the whole mix of how you think about building your network. And another interesting point she made, and by the way, we have a fireside chat with Marissa, which you can find on YouTube. It was recorded. Uh, But one of the things that she talks about, which I thought was really interesting, was that your network, the network you need evolves over time. Um, so that what you want when you're early, perhaps in your career or your life is a, a different kind of network than you might perhaps gravitate towards, uh, later, later on. It's, I think that the relationship between networks, networking and reciprocity is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and this is all related to success. So, so networks are a key piece of what differentiates who succeeds and who doesn't mm-hmm. among givers, takers, and matchers. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll just 
give everybody the answer of <laughs> top, middle, and bottom since you guessed. And so part of your mind is going to be waiting for that answer until I tell you. People at the bottom are most likely to be givers. Mm. They're most givers are more likely to be the victims of a violent crime, plaintiffs in a lawsuit. However, for all of you people who guess givers at the top, you're also right. The people at the top are also most likely to be givers. The difference between givers at the bottom and the top, one, there are a number of different factors. One of them is just time in two different ways that it takes a while to build a reputation as a giver, which is part of what helps you succeed. And it takes a while for you to figure out who the takers are in a new environment if you don't want to be giving to them. And secondly, the givers at the top are, have figured out how to draw boundaries and the givers at the bottom haven't. Uh. And the givers at the top have figured out how to be proactive about their investments of time, money, energy, social capital. And the givers at the top are doing more good. They're, they're doing good for more people than the givers at the bottom are reactively getting sucked dry hmm. by people who are asking them for stuff. For stuff all the time, and, yeah. Yeah, an exception though is givers overall are, um, so they're happier overall, but they are also um, in totality less likely to have as much money as takers and matchers. But this is because overall they care less about money. So it's not weird that people who care less about money have less of it. <laughs> takers and matchers for everyone who is guessing, they're mixed in the middle. The reason takers don't have as much chances of rising to the top as givers is just what you would predict that people are figuring out who the takers are and not interacting with them, but also matchers who care about fairness and justice are punishing the takers. Mm -hmm. And that holds matchers back from rising to the top because they're diverting their energy to punishment and the police work on behalf of the rest of us in society. And then matchers, by the way, most of us are matchers. That's the most common default style. Matchers don't ask for favors they can't repay. And this holds matchers back from being visionary leaders because of being a visionary or transformational leader requires that you ask people to do much more for this cause than you could be able to return to them. That's fascinating. Oh, that's super interesting. You know, what it reminds me of a little bit is a reported conversation which was held with John Bogle, um, you know, the legendary founder of Vanguard, I believe it was. I mean, but, you know, super um, influential person in the world of financial services. And the story is told that he was going to some party in the Hamptons with this guy who was running a hedge fund or whatnot. And his companion, Bogle's companion said, um, you know, how do you feel knowing that like in your career, you've probably made less than, um, oh, I remember what was Bogle was talking to the author of Catch-22. That's what it was. That was his companion. How, would, how does it make you feel that in the entire history of the publication of this book that you've earned less than this guy probably made in a day? And the response was, oh, I feel fine about it because I have something he'll never have. And Bogle's like, what, what is that? <laughs> and he says, enough. <laughs> I thought that That's was a wonderful. great story. Yeah. 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 And, and 
what it takes to have enough is just different for everybody. But if you haven't thought about it, you might not have an end game that you can cross to actually be there. For most people, this is just research, if you ask them, if you ask what would it take, how much money would you need to have to be rich? That's not exactly the same, but how much would you need to have to be rich? And at every income level, it's two and a half times more than I have now. Love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. One of my um, one of my colleagues and a previous guest is a guy named Zachary Carabell. Um, and he just wrote a book called Inside Money, Brown Brothers, Harriman and the American Way of Power. Um, but one of the observations he makes is that a lot of our financial decision makers um, went from a mode of, of thinking in terms of their, yes, you know, to whom great riches are entrusted, there's also great responsibility. They went from that mode to more of our economic leaders now being driven by scorekeeping and, you know, who's got the biggest yacht and, you know, whatever that stuff is. And it really doesn't have that, that balance um, at all, but I don't want to get us off topic. But So that, we started on the Spider-Man doctrine a while <laughs> right. ago and we moved from there. Yeah. Kennedy was a big proponent mm -hmm. of that, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. I do want to come back to, exactly. to influence, because one of the things that you said, which I think is so interesting, is we can't change people's minds, but we can influence their behavior. And I wonder if maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, sure. It's really easy to imagine that what influence means is changing people's minds, but that's rarely the outcome that we wanted. Usually it's changing behavior, and it can be much harder to change people's minds than to change their behavior. So a story that I share is about the most successful in history, discussed in textbooks everywhere in public health and social good marketing and things is the five a day campaign by um, the FDA. And it was a private partnership also with the produce lobbying company in California, where they're trying to get Americans to eat five or more servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And you, it, this has been going on for uh, a long time across the world now. I don't know if it's still happening in the US because they've moved it, but it has been replicated in at least 30 other countries because it was so successful. And they started in 1990 and over the next five years, they spent $200 million on this campaign. And they showed that awareness that you needed to eat this many fruits and vegetables in order to be healthy tripled during that time. So it's a fantastic marketing outcome. And I say this as a marketing person, just trust me if you don't know what those numbers should be, but it's like between um, eight to 25% or something like this. However, it didn't get publicized that the number of people who were actually eating five or more servings of fruits and vegetables per day was 11% in 1990. And a decade later, it had actually declined. Oh, no. So, <laughs> yes. What people know is totally different from what they decide to do. And what they decide to do is totally different from what they actually do. And you know this, everybody knows this. From, if you've ever chosen a new year's resolution there's a two-thirds so a third of us make new year's resolutions and then 80 percent of us 
don't follow, don't succeed in our new year's resolutions. I think it's amazing that 20% do. I've definitely never been in that 20%, but there's this vast gap between intentions and behavior and researchers call it the intention behavior gap. But what you want, if, if what you want is the behavior, then that's the direction to focus on your influence strategizing plans and things like that. And the best thing you can do is make it as easy as possible to do that thing. So thinking about eating more fruits and vegetables, actually, it's really hard, super hard for all kinds of reasons, logistics, temptations, and things like that. That's fascinating. So one of the things that you've talked about is the single best predictor of behavior is ease, not price, not quality, not comfort, and not desire. And I, I, I just, I, that just, <laughs> I didn't know how to react to that. And I, but then I thought about it and I thought, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. You know, if I can, if something's easy, that's just kind of becomes the default. Yeah. You don't have to think about it, right? It doesn't take any energy to do things that are easy. Mm-hmm. And it is very, very hard to do things that require any kind of willpower or resisting temptation. So if you, if you're, and by the way, about 30% of the time, so a third of us probably are in the situation right now, we are already resisting something. We're resisting some temptation to like on a webinar, maybe you're resisting or not resisting temptation to check your emails. Maybe you are resisting temptation to sleep, right? Maybe you're resisting whatever these temptations are. Um, Lots of our life is spent resisting temptations and our willpower gets very easily depleted and you're having to think about it consciously. So we just need to lower our expectations of other people's ability to follow through on what they say they will do. And we just need to make it as easy as possible. Let me ask. So this is a good um, chat question. Mm -hmm. We don't need to, um, I don't need to be able to talk to you, but for everyone on the call right now, Amazon, however you feel about it, however you feel about Jeff Bezos, it doesn't matter. You can't argue with they are super freaking successful. I propose the reason for this is almost all of their innovations have been making it easier and easier and easier for you to get stuff from them. Right into the chat, what does Amazon do now or in the past to make it easy for you to get stuff from them? Yeah, I have a concept I teach called the customer consumption chain, which begins with you know awareness of need, search for solutions, selecting a provider, contracting, paying, you know, all the experiences a customer goes through. And if you look at Amazon, it's like they do something at every single link in that consumption chain. <laughs> that it it's so important, Rita, that so many people um, don't understand what you're teaching them about influence that the objective in each influence situation shouldn't be the end game. It's mm-hmm. get to the next step uh-huh. and get uh-huh. to the next step oh, I love and that. get to I the next that. step. Mm-hmm. And, and that's also related to what we're talking about, about making it easier mm-hmm. um, here. And, and the end game is usually people trying to persuade and change minds, mm-hmm. like wanting you to wanting you to want to get to the end. And when you go step by step, then it's easier to focus on the logistics. So I just want to look and see what we have for Amazon. Previous purchases, yeah, super easy. Order again. Um, 
they save all of your information. Yes. They Amazon was, I think, the first company that did one-click shopping. So you didn't have to go through the shopping cart. They patented and it. They patented, they patented it. it. Okay. Yep. Then, it, was, it was one of the very first business. Definitely the patents. first. Mm-hmm. That's thank you. That's interesting. And I and I'll remember that. What I've read is the statistic is that when they did this not just Amazon, but all over digital retail, 75% of the items customers would put in an online cart were being abandoned yep. before they made finish the transaction. And Amazon said, great, we want to capture that business, but they did it by making it easy for the customers. Mm-hmm. So again and again and again. Um, they... I'll and returns, yeah, my, my, making returns that, really easy, all kinds of other stuff. Yeah, that something that drives my husband crazy is he'll, um, you know, he'll be doing work around the house and look up for some product or other that he needs, goes to like Lowe's and says, do you have this in stock? They say yes, drives over there. Once you're in the store, can't find it, doesn't have it, whatever. Comes back home, you know, <laughs> kind of in an annoyed state, um, orders it on Amazon, it's there the next day. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, convenience is incredible. Yeah, super easy to order. They had one innovation that failed because it well, was lots. too, I mean, yes, but this one innovation failed because it was too easy and it was also not easy enough. And I don't know if anybody on the call purchased a dash button, but these were physical buttons that you, that are, that you program relatively straightforwardly to give you one particular item, one particular SKU when you push that physical button. So you could program it for your favorite cat food or you know the toilet paper, like whatever it is. When you run out of the thing, you just push the button and then like poof, like magic, it shows up at your house. But it was the programming part of it, even though programmers would feel like this is so easy, taking any steps like that. I actually bought five of them myself and they sat in a drawer and hmm. I didn't program them because it took this extra step. But then um, please somebody guess on the chat, who do you think it would be too easy for to push the button in the house that gets the product? Oh. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have a lot of people guessing kids. Yes, because it's so fun to push a button. And it only gives one product in 24 hours or whatever each time you push it. But of course, nobody wants to have your children or somebody else's children going from the house, like, doo, 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 doo. so done, no more done. Oh, that's fascinating. The other one I thought was really interesting um, was that, uh, and this happened, I think, with the Alexa, um, where there was, I want to say it was like a television program or something that that talked about Alexa, and all of a sudden, these products started to turn up in people's houses, doll houses, and, you know, all these things that their kids had ordered through Alexa, oh send me a doll house. Alexa, send me a I have to find out about that <laughs> it was a really interesting case um and and That's yeah you know, who in who in your household has the keys to the kingdom here <laughs> that is so 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 funny i mean amazon's had a lot of things that haven't worked out but you know yeah their their position on that is that's just the cost of discovery like that's just that's just what we need to do to to find out the things that do work. Um, I mean, yeah, everybody else? who experiments fails, right? That's what experiments do. Well, if you knew yeah. what the answer was, you wouldn't be doing an experiment. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so one of the things that um, they they did, which sort of to me encapsulates like the best and the worst of innovation. So it in, it was the Fire Phone. You remember that one? And this was totally a Jeff Bezos 
pet project. I didn't know the fire ever had a phone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it was called, a, it was called the fire phone and it was, they spent, I don't know. So let's say they spent half a billion dollars on it, something like that. I mean, it was a big, big project and everybody knew it was Jeff Bezos's baby. And they were kind of, kind of like, you know, this, this might, this might not work. Like it's not an iPhone. And he, I guess he wanted like to channel his inner Steve jobs or something, but anyway, they announced it to the market. The market was not impressed. But the phone incorporated the voice recognition technology that would later go into Alexa and which has now become embedded in other people's technology. So if you look at, say, Samsung speakers, they're actually using Amazon technology inside their offerings, which is for a, for a, uh, you know, for a provider that is nirvana. Like if you're specced into somebody else's products, you just benefit from all the marketing and all the outreach that they do. So, you know, it didn't work out in the market originally in its original form, but it did lead, lead to some really interesting things. And I think in a lot of companies, if it doesn't work out on the first blush, they sort of stick it under the rug, pretend it never happened. The people that are involved are all gone and we lose our memory of what actually happened and what might still be recoupable from that in, endeavor. Absolutely, 100%. And as a behavioral scientist, one, and all of my colleagues as well, something that we're just constantly trying to persuade people of students, yes, but especially when we teach exec ed is experiment, 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 because you never know what will come out of it. And also, you cannot trust the results of behavioral research that you read about or somebody else's outcome, because it's all context dependent. Mm -hmm. So even if you understand the psychological forces, my call for my colleagues, I mean, 90% of our experiments fail huh. and our hypotheses were wrong. And this is smart people making guesses about things in their field, but it's really, really easy to be wrong. And these are things that we thought were worth it. Like the fire phone and spending a half a billion dollars. And you had to have a pretty good feeling about it to actually have it work out. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah value of experimentation. And another thing that people underestimate the value of when you are doing experiments and when you're doing surveys in particular is open-ended responses. You get so much more valuable data if you give people an opportunity to say their thing rather than actually um, just giving you quantitative information. And you don't need to ask them for as many quantitative things if you have a text box, like, mm -hmm. because, and if they filled out a whole lot of those numbers, they're not as inclined to just tell you the one thing. Mm -mm. No, I know. We were talking, in fact, earlier in this webinar about stupid surveys. <laughs> you know, just oh my God. People make in surveys. And it's a particular pet peeve of mine because, you know, I mean, the surveys that come to you with the numbers already filled in, or the lady at the bank who says, you know, you're going to get a survey. And if anything less than a 10, it's like a disaster for my career. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, what are these people thinking? <laughs> it's just not going to yield insightful or useful information about what, what's yeah. really going on with your customers. So what suggestions were you giving people about making their surveys better? Oh, about surveys? I mean, um, actually, and I, I'm sorry, because everyone else here has already heard. So that was a super. No, 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 I didn't. No, no, I didn't. We didn't. I didn't get into this part of it at all. Oh, okay, great. Um, so a couple of principles for designing surveys that I try to teach is the first one is you always want relative measures. So if I say to you, Zoe, so, so what's the quality of our relationship on a scale of one to five? And I say, oh, it's about a three. 
what do you do with that? <laughs> right? I mean, there's no like valid data set. You want relative measures. So relative to competing offers, relative to expectations, relative to my hopes, fears, and dreams. But you know, something that sort of says, okay, I'm comparing this to that. And that's why I think this is better. So that's one. Second one is try to have a meaningful dependent variable. So um, that's some kind of outcome measure that you're asking people to weigh in on. Um, and then what you can do is you can how, sort of correlate the independent to the independent variable. So how, typically- how do how like how can people judge the meaningfulness of the dependent variable? Well, if you're by the so, way, I'm I'm taking notes. So oh, if okay. my face looks weird or anything, I'm writing <laughs> no, down what I learned from you. Yeah. So um, oh, a couple of things you can do. So one one, I mean, the, the classic things would be things like net promoter scores, or you know, the next time you're in the market for X Y Z, would we be a company you'd consider doing business with? Um, or you know, relative to provider, you know, would, would you prefer to do business with us or not? So something that sort of gets to what's the what's the user going to actually do now that they've had this survey experience. So you want to have a dependent variable. The other thing that you want to be able to do. So it's behavior related. Behavior related. Yep. Yeah. So meaningful dependent variable. Uh, another one is the open-ended. So offer opportunities for people to weigh in on something that isn't pre-programmed. And finally, if you're having scales, right, make them meaningful. I mean, I can't, I was just, in fact, I just was logged into this social network that someone was promoting and I've interacted with it maybe three times and they sent me this survey. Like I could not move forward with what I came to the network to do without filling out this survey. And they said, well, overall, what's your experience been like with it? I'm like, I've been on it two days. I have no basis of experience to respond to this question. And it was just, it was just like, they should know that I've only been on the thing for maybe 10 minutes before bombarding me with this survey. So there's a hugely important piece of what's the context in which the respondent is admired when, when you're doing surveys. So, you know, surveys are not awful. Um, you can get useful information from surveys. So as an example, I do a, a team effectiveness uh, a survey with small teams where it's 20 questions. They're very simple, uh, but they basically say, is your team more like condition A or more like condition B? And when you look at the pattern of responses, what you can pretty quickly pick up on is where are they struggling? You know, where is it information flows? Is it people in the right roles? Is it psychological safety? Is it, you know, where are we stuck? And then you can do a meaningful debrief. So to me, that's a useful kind of way of constructing a survey because it's their own data. They're invested in the outcome. <laughs> They're curious what their colleagues think. And it's something they can work on after you've, after you've got the information. Yeah, and you've been able to test it and show that the that the differences that you find are relating to meaningful behavioral outcomes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This this is it's very helpful. I do survey design and help oh, people uh -huh. with survey design, but there are always more things that we can learn about our Absolutely. field. And I've seen so many bad surveys come out from Pew Research Center. That is their whole entire job. And I get mad and I tweet about them when I see them. But <laughs> survey design is just so much more, it, it is so much harder to execute well than okay. somebody might think. Yeah. By the way, when you mentioned DVs, a DV that's underused is called the customer effort score, but it doesn't matter what it's called. It only matters what it is. There's a book that's really good that's called The Effortless Experience huh. by the consultancy that has done a lot of the work to make sure that this customer effort score is mapping to meaningful outcomes. And in essence, the question is just how easy was it for you to do the thing that you were trying to do? And it is more predictive than things like um, net promoter score and customer satisfaction um, of 
How much do they continue to do business with the company? Do they give the company good word of mouth or bad word of mouth? How much total business do they do? And all of these great wow. outcomes. If you, yeah, if you said that it was difficult to do business with the company, then it doesn't matter what the outcome was. You are very likely to leave the company. That's and if you said that it was really easy, you're very unlikely to leave the company. That is so interesting. Uh, absolutely. Effortless experience. I love that. Um, can, I, can I ask you? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, like, I'm so excited to meet you. And we haven't gotten to talk before. And we have such similar interests um, and complementary backgrounds. And mm -hmm. since we're talking about books, mm -hmm. is there any book that you've read recently that you'd want to recommend to me and the people on the call? Sure. Something I think you've gotten excited you. about? Oh yeah, I think one of I mean I've read a lot because I invite a lot of authors onto 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 here. So um, um, there's a couple that um, depending on what your interests are. Um, so one that I can recommend is a book called The Imagination Machine by Martin Reeves, and it's tangential I think a little bit to some of what you talk about when you talk about you know the lizard brain and the and I'm, I, the alligator brain and the court. I, I, I'm going to want to hear about that in a bit. But what um, what Martin does in the book with his co-author is he says you know the human imagination is sparked by some something dissonant in your environment. Like if your environment is the same, the same, the same, the same, the same, it doesn't spark imagination. It's just, you just go on autopilot and, and you do what you were doing. But if there's a, 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 a something that, so this is, whoa, that never happened before, that's not right. And he talks about the arc of imagination going from the sort of moment of, well, that's surprising, that's weird. And then all the way through to, oh no, that's just the way how we do things now, right? So if you think about, something simple like that happened in my life, which is the emergence of email. Um, I mean, I remember back in the day when I was doing my PhD program, you had to, you had like you and your counterparty, if you wanted to exchange documents, you had to line a thing up with it, it was called TPPF programming or something. Like you both had to be on the computer at the same time with your, you know, cable modems hooked up. <laughs> and we thought this was revolutionary because I didn't have to send the paper via FedEx. I mean, this was amazing. And today, you know, were we transferring video files with 393 gigabytes of data happily around the world. Um, and we think this is completely normal. We forget that, that the process of human imagination is this moment of going from, that's really strange, that's weird, all the way through to, well, of course, that's how we do things. And, uh, and I think it's, it, it ties into this notion of the alligator brain because when things have been too stable for too long, and this is something I write about in the strategy world, um, we sort of take our eye off the ball. We don't see the small changes that are eventually potentially going to erupt into an inflection point. So the imagination machine, I can, I can definitely uh, recommend that. Awesome. So um, I'm loving some of the um, concept you're talking about um, easy. And, you know, one of my, um, one of my all time favorite marketing um, tools was Staples old easy button. Um, yeah. And, and there's their, um, 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 they took that concept. Um, I, I don't remember the, the, the story exactly. If it started in headquarters and came to marketing or started marketing with the headquarters, but they literally transformed everything they were doing. But when they were in their peak and before the internet started to tear their business apart, obviously they were a successful, wealthy company and were, were a disruptor. But they even used that concept for navigation within the building, you know, easy way to find accounting, easy way to find, HR, easy way to fill out your forms. 
Um, and I think uh, you made the, uh, I, I wrote down a couple of your quotes, which I think are incredibly powerful, right? Which is, you know, best predictive behavior is ease. I think that's incredibly um, insightful and simple and powerful. And, and if it's difficult to do your business, do business, you're going to leave. And if it's easy, you're going to stay. Um, so, you know, that's reminding me of a lot of things that I've done over the years where we've tried to make very complex things simple. And it, to me, that's the success behind great companies like Apple. You know, Steve Jobs made yeah. it easy to use a computer, easy to use a phone, easy to use a tablet, easy to do business with them. And I think it's a huge, huge driver. And and that brings up the importance of the the customer effort score metric is essentially measuring how easy it feels. Mm-hmm. It's not measuring how easy it is. And so the actual process is important, but what matters about whether they stay or not and give you business is how easy it feels. And Apple makes it feel really easy to get help when you walk into an Apple store because there are so many people, they have more customer service people working in an Apple store than any other store. It's like nothing. And aesthetically, they've created this experience for it to feel easy. But it, it, and it's, and you're saying Apple products are so easy. They're, they're not really easy. It's just that the Apple's created the reputation of it being easy and that we will be somehow helped through the process. And then some other technology companies just have horrifically difficult kinds yes. of processes and stuff, right? The, the other thing that, that that Apple has done, so when you go into that store, it's kind of that heaven, Steve, Steve's kind of heaven theory, you know, everything's white and clean. Everybody, everybody is. Um, I never heard nobody- the heaven thing. Oh, that's yeah, cool. It, it's absolutely uh, a philosophy. It was a philosophy. It's it, um, and and um, no one's on commission. And so, and if you back all the way right. up to uh, Best Buy, kind of uh, in my career, I've, they were one of my experiences. They completely uh, transformed their business when they started to think about how do you how do you get the uh, the salesperson's kind of compensation scheme out of the transaction. So when they went to concept three, the biggest thing they did was say, I'm not paying salespeople commission anymore. So now you've freed up that person. They, they were a slave to the commission. Then they became a slave to the customer, right? It's like, how do I make this customer really happy? And they changed their compensation scheme to reflect customer satisfaction in the store as a major driver for management compensation. Um, and that concept continued to go forward uh, with the launch of things like Geek Squad. I don't know if you're a Geek Squad fan, but <laughs> Geek Squad. I actually they... last week told my husband to sign up for Geek Squad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah. because like all guys, he's not as good with technology as he thinks he is. Um, but in any case, the uh, Geek Squad came from, if you remember way back when in 2003, 4, 5, Geek Squad launched, uh, Best Buy bought Geek Squad in 2002. Um, Geek Squad was all about making my Wi-Fi work. So the most complicated thing in people's lives at that time is this thing called Wi-Fi happened. Well, I can't connect my computer. I can't make any of this work. And you literally would pay almost anything. And their value proposition was at that time for $149, we'll come to your house, we'll make Wi-Fi work. We'll stay as long as it takes. We'll come back as many times as it takes. 
and, and independent kind of computer stores were charging by the hour. And, you know, it could cost you, you know, all these horror stories about how they would come to your house and it just absolutely never worked. And they, and then Geek Squad through Best Buy had this incredibly simple, for $149, we guarantee it'll work, full stop. Nothing could be easier. Now your Wi-Fi was incredibly complex and it's still kind of a mess, but focusing on that problem truly transformed the technology services business. And, and this is another so great example of the difference between actual ease and perception of ease. Yeah, because having exactly. somebody charge you by hour is not more difficult in any way than just one price. But when they say it's 149, we do whatever it takes, that feels really easy. Yeah, it feels really easy and it, and it takes the risk out of out of the transaction. You know, I, I don't want somebody wandering around my house for five hours, drinking coffee and taking a break and charging, charging me $500. Um, you can see that the compensation is lined up with the customer's need, which is in fact easy. It's like, I need this thing fixed, but I also don't want you to drag my checkbook through the driveway <laughs> at the same time. I just tell me what it's going to cost. I'll pay you. And then we have a very simple transaction um, and you solve this incredibly vexing problem for me. Yeah, nobody on earth has figured out that I know of how to deal well with the conflict of interest entailed in hourly wages. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. It's a, it's a vexing problem. And, and the companies that have figured it out, Apple is one, Best Buy and retail is one. They get the commission. There's very few commissioned environments. Nordstrom is one of the very few that I can think of that are highly customer centric, right? So aligning the compensation with the customer need and expectation is in, in fact making things simpler and easier uh, to uh, to get done. Yeah, we we um, strangely work with a lot of car dealership managers here at Yale School of Management, because we have an arrangement with Volvo. And so they send everybody who wants to come managing dealerships across the country. And it's interesting to be talking with them about compensation schemes. And the one here closest to us has no comp, uh, sorry, has no commission. But it's really, really rare, of course, in car dealerships. But apparently, according to the car dealers that I get to talk to, customer loyalty and customer satisfaction are so much higher in these businesses and, and employee retention is higher when they've shifted to no commission from commission. Um, well, um, when BMW systems. bought Mini and reintroduced Mini to North America, they introduced, you know, those little Mini Cooper stores. They look very cute. Um, and they reintroduced it all with a no commission scheme. And in fact, they went out of their way to I didn't hire know that. salespeople who had never sold cars before. Um, and I bought so one of cool. them, <laughs> believe it or not, I, a big guy like me bought a mini Cooper in 2000, I think it was in 2002 and people used to laugh at me sitting in it, but the, but the sales experience was incredible. When I bought the car, there was no pressure whatsoever. So Rita's Wi-Fi is coming back. We were just talking about easy, uh, Rita, and, uh, <laughs> clearly your inter internet is not easy. <laughs> I think it must be the uh, the storms that we had go through because the house was okay, but the connection to the outside world wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, I mean, I was, everybody for uh, for knocking out like that. It was definitely. So, <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you back to Zoe. We were talking about easy and some of my favorite uh, easy things like Apple and Geek Squad and oh yeah, uh, the yeah. old staples easy button. Yeah. So. 
And, and Ron just transitioned so gracefully and seamlessly that it probably felt all very easy for other people. On the call. <laughs> Ron does make things easy. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes. I'll get, out of your, I'll get out of your way and just listen in. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, so I did want to, before, before leaving, uh, and I know you've got to be gone at the quarter, to, to, uh, at quarter before the hour, um, I'd love you to sort of expand a little on this idea of the alligator brain in the court because I think it does tie so much into this idea of easy. And we often don't think about like how many decisions we make that are just autopilot decisions. Sure. Yeah. Um, in So if anybody on the call has read or maybe bought and used as a paperweight or bookstopper 800 page book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist. Um, he just had a new book come out called Noise. And if anyone's read it, please let me know because I haven't read it yet. But I have it read on my Obviously, book. he's <laughs> and obviously this guy is a genius if he's winning Nobel Prizes. What thinking fast and slow refers to is in behavioral economics jargon, system one and system two, system one being fast and system two being slow. And I use the analogy of an alligator and a judge. All of system one and system two processing is supposed to explain every decision and every behavior as an interaction between these two systems. The fast one is unconscious, intuitive, and automatic, our gator brain, where we have perception of the world around us, stuff going on in our subconscious mind and processing all the time. We can't turn it on. We can't turn it off. It's reactive. It's there. We're looking for opportunities and threats. We are doing things like breathing, right? You can't quantify how much of our actions and behavior are conscious versus unconscious. You can't measure it. But people who study this stuff estimate that 90% is unconscious versus 10% being conscious. But we think of ourselves as people who are doing things intentionally, but that's only because we can only perceive the conscious part. Everything else, it's like, you know, the iceberg analogy, the biggest part of it is under the water where you can't see it. When we can, when we can behave in a way that we didn't need to engage our conscious mind, like if you think about mm, eating decisions, if you're opening up the fridge and figuring out what to eat, you are largely unconsciously grabbing something with very little thought because you make this decision so many times in the day and so many times in your life. If you had to make conscious trade-offs, you would stand there the rest of your life in front of the fridge, deciding this or that, the relative thing, right? So this is why E, it's probably the entire reason that ease is the biggest driver of our behavior because every every bit of thinking we require somebody to do reduces the chance that that thing is going to happen. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So how do you persuade someone? I mean, I guess this is this one of the big questions people must come to you all the time. Like how do you persuade someone to do something that perhaps they're not inclined to do or they're ideologically opposed to doing or, you know, whatever. Um, are there recommendations you would make for, you know, you're not, if we accept that you're not going to change their mind, but you want to focus instead on changing their behavior. Um, and whether that's health or whether that's, you know, student behavior, you know, I, but if you want to focus just on the behavior, are there things you can recommend there? So 
let's let's talk about ideology because you mm-hmm. brought it up and this is such a difficult and fraught and polarizing and difference. polarizing. Yeah. And it's just yeah. I mean it's hard to get past that. Yeah. So first of all, some good news is there is a bias that's called the false polarization bias, mm-hmm. which is the truth that we are far less different ideologically than we imagine ourselves to be. And when somebody disagrees with us and we know that they're on the other side of the fence on whatever issue, it turns out that they are far less extreme than we imagine that they are. Okay. And again and again and again, um, research has found this. And I send students out into the world who discover and rediscover this doing a challenge that I call the empathy challenge, where I ask people to have three 15 minute conversations with someone who disagrees with them on an issue that they care about. And their goal is just to understand that person and figure out what their values are that are underlying those feelings. And then they reflect those values back to that person and say, it sounds like you really care about fairness, or it sounds like you really care about your family, or it sounds like you really care about freedom and liberty. What ends up happening first is that most of us share values. Most values are shared. They're just prioritized in a different order. So just talking about values with another person has us feeling more empathy toward them. And the second piece of this, which is in a long-term relationship, having any possibility of persuading somebody who is determined not to do this thing that you say or you want is just based on some empathy and understanding of that person, them feeling understood, like not just you understand what they said, but you understand why, why they cared about it. And then we can have conversations connecting with that value. But I would also never try to persuade someone to change their ideology. And I know you're not saying that Rita, but just the idea that we can have different ideology and still agree on things like policies or what's the right thing to do. And those conversations can be happening about values mm-hmm. and finding common values, discussing mm-hmm. those. Mm-hmm. Have you ever well, had a successful conversation um, with somebody who was just fundamentally opposed from an ideological perspective? I'm just curious if there's like one, and I'm just putting you on the spot, but if there's something that pops into your head. Um, well, I can share an anecdote that a colleague of mine uses, um, which I think does illustrate it. So she, she t- she's a storyteller and she teaches uh, storytelling and persuasion in, in that context. And she had a bunch of students in her class that she sent off to upstate New York. And the issue they were concerned about was the legalization of gay marriage. And there was this one town in upstate New York that was just adamantly opposed, just ideologically, just this was not it. And the first time the students went up, they were talking about sort of classic liberal ideology. So it's all about freedom and it's all about, you know, the right to choose. And it's all about, you know, it doesn't matter who you love and this and that. Total disconnect, total deaf ears. And so they came back and reported, you know, sadly that they had been completely unsuccessful. And so my colleagues said, well, wait a minute, like you're not talking to them 
in a way that makes sense to the people you're trying to influence. And she said, why don't you go back and look at what their values are? And so family, really important, um, individual responsibility, the economy, also very important, community, very important. And so the students actually did this research and they looked at the amount of money it was costing all the local businesses in that that particular county, because all of these weddings were happening elsewhere because it wasn't legal for people to get married there. And so they made this economic argument. They said, look, you know, the, the, the florist, the cake baker, the local people, I mean, they could be making this much more and that could be going into your communities. It would be going into your charities. It would be going into your churches. And they actually were able to influence enough people that that, passed, that, that measure passed successfully endorsing gay marriage. So I think part of what we get wrong is that we project onto other people the values that we hold. And I see this a lot in, you know, in innovation, right? So if I really think, I don't know, touch screens are super cool, I make the assumption everybody else feels that way when, you know, the people I'm talking to could prefer buttons. <laughs> you know? So, um, so I think, I think, and I'll, I'll reflect more on whether I've ever had personally a conversation like that, but I thought that was a super interesting example. Of yeah, it's that. super interesting. What is her name, by the way? Her name is Jane Prager, P-R-A-E-G-E-R. And she runs a, a, a little entity called Ovid. And she helps executives and others learn to uh, present themselves, present ideas, influence uh, others. And uh, But it's a great story she tells about, you know, don't frame yeah. it the way that, that um, don't frame it in terms of what would influence you. <laughs> Try to understand and frame it in, in what would be influential to the others. Now, I know I've got yeah. to let you go. So, um where can people learn more uh, so they can pre-order your book, right? That's, so that's forthcoming. Are you done with it now? Have you yes. like, hit print? It's done. It's at the publisher. It, I just got back yesterday. First pass proofs. See what it looks like. We still don't have a cover. We're on cover designer number five. So I'll uh -huh. be excited I've when been, that I've happens. That. The first four are always awful. <laughs> They're always awful. <laughs> that is like a universal truth of my life in publishing, but funny. <laughs> Great. Um, and I'll be excited to look through the chat. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Um, my name Zoe Chance. I have a website as well. Fairly easy to find. If I, I also have a newsletter sharing influence insights infrequently. And if you would like to sign up for that, there's a link at the bottom of my webpage. That's great. And so, I'm, hoping I'm sorry we didn't get to interact everybody, but Rita, I've loved talking with you. Oh, and it's Ron, I love talking with you too. To be continued for sure.